This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Well, good morning, Bridgeway. It is great to see you here today. My name is Pastor Ron, and I have the great privilege of opening God's Word with you this morning. As you can see, we're in a series titled Pure Gold. My hope in this series is that we would learn a really famous verse in the Bible that I think you know, but trying to do it in maybe a little different way because we don't really know it as well as we should. And so in just a moment, we'll be there, but I want to take just a quick moment and welcome you. It's so good to see you here today. Um, I want to welcome you, especially if this is your first time. We're just so excited to have you. I also want to uh, just give a quick shout out. If you missed uh, any of the messages in this series, you can always check us out online on our YouTube, on our podcast. I got to tell you, uh, last week I was so blessed by Pastor Justin and his message on being immersed in God. So you can check that out as well. Um, I, I hold in my hand, I don't know if you've ever heard of a, a Gordian knot. Have you ever heard of a Gordian knot? It's apparently the type of knot that if you tie it correctly, it can't be untied. And, uh, of course, that's true because I learned that on the Internet. And uh, I actually got some instructions and tied this knot really tight, thought I had it. Uh, and then my dog took this off the counter and actually untangled, untangled it in about 10 minutes. So my little dog, Luca, got it apart. So I don't think I did it right. So maybe this picture uh, will be a better image for you. But I want you to think this morning about this knot. There's a legend behind the Gordian knot, and it has to do with um, 4th century ancient Turkey, where a poor peasant man named Gordius kind of came to the end of his rope. And he decided as sort of a last-ditch effort to dedicate all of his resources, all of his money, all of his wealth to the Greek god Zeus. And he loaded up this ox cart full of his possessions, and he tied the ox cart to the post in town. And he tied the knot so intricately that no one could undo it. In fact, to the point in which um, an oracle began to foretell this legend that if someone could come into town and untie this knot, then they would be worthy of being the king. And sure enough, the knot stayed tied for literally centuries. It was Gordius's knot until one day a young boy named Alexander came into town. And he heard this legend and he heard this promise of possibly being the next king, and he thought nothing of it. And in a second, he took out his sword, and he sliced the knot in two. And on that day, Alexander the Great was born. And his genius was really in the fact that he was the first one who chose to approach the problem differently. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, is maybe the knots or the problems in your life. I believe that it's just a shared human experience that we all have things in life that we're going through, problems, difficulties. And in a room this size, I can only imagine uh, what people are going through. In fact, you might be here today, and, and the knot, the tangled mess in your life right now is, is your marriage. And the more you try to untangle it, it just seems like the worse that it gets. And, and you're here this morning, and you would love nothing more for something to come and to slice that knot into. Maybe your problem, your knot this morning, is relational in nature. And there's this other person, and you've got this issue, and you've said some things, and they've said some things, and it just seems like nothing is getting to the bottom of this. It's a knot, and you desperately wish that something could slice through this relational problem. 
maybe you're not this morning is one of a, of a mental stress. You're just fatigued. You've been thinking about things. And the more you think about them, the bigger the problem becomes and you're losing this battle in your mind. Maybe the problem is, is just it's been a tough season and you find yourself dealing with grief and compounded grief on top of that and it just seems so tight. Problems on top of problems. You've experienced a Gordian knot. In fact, you might have at least one problem, but you might have many, many problems. I've got problems, you've got problems, and we would love nothing more than for them to be solved. And the good news and the pure gold that I want to get to in this series is that the sword has come that slices the knot of all of our problems. And this has to do with this very famous verse that kind of shapes for us what the good news, the gospel is for us. And I shared a few weeks ago that this verse has become so common, such, uh, such a refrain in our culture that you see it everywhere. Uh, you see placards of this verse at sporting events and golf outings and Tim Tebow's face. And it's nothing, none other than John 3.16. And what I hope in this series is to really uncover maybe the mystery, the hidden mystery of this verse that we know all too well. I want to read it for you this morning. John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If you were here a couple weeks ago, uh, the main idea that I wanted to get across is the reminder that this verse shows you how special you are. You are, you are loved by God. And more than just loved, you are so loved. And I want to kind of continue on that theme, but this morning, I want to ask maybe the question behind the verse. And it's the question that has to do with this not, and it's the question of why. Have you ever think about it? I mean, it's such a famous verse. We read it, we memorize it, we underline it, but, but why? Why does God so love the world, I mean, to the extent, the far-reaching, that he would actually give his one and only son? Have you thought about that? And I think we take this for granted, and yet we see this in so many ways. So kind of the point of this series is to take the most popular 316, John 316, and try to understand it by looking at maybe some, some less common 316s in the Bible. And I'm going to preach from a text that I am certain I have never preached from before, uh, in fact, when I listed out all the 316s, you know, there's a Genesis 316, and we looked at a Judges 316, Justin looked at Matthew 316. When I listed this one on my notebook, I thought, oh, dear Lord, I don't want to preach that one. So that's the verse we're going to preach today, and it's 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 16. I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 16, and I want to try to unpack the why of this verse for you. Let me give you a little bit of background before we read what we're about to read. First Kings chapter 3 is way back in the Old Testament, and you find yourself there in uh, the 7th century BC, just after a period where Israel has been ruled by King David. You know David, he's, he's this amazing giant killer, he takes down Goliath, and, and goes through a whole process of leading uh, the people of Israel. And then he steps down, and his son Solomon takes over as king. Kind of some big shoes to follow. And Solomon is given this incredible opportunity. He's kind of given like this, this genie in a bottle sort of moment. He's told that he can ask God for one thing. You know, what would that be for you? If you had the opportunity, God, what's one thing, and you were promised that God would answer it? 
Well, God kind of, or Solomon kind of blows God away because instead of asking for maybe what you and I would ask for, you know, like unlimited resources or power, Solomon says, God, if, if you would just give me wisdom to rule your people, and God does. God gives him an incredible amount of wisdom. Turns out that in all of his wisdom, Solomon actually turns out to be uh, the most wealthy and the most powerful man in the ancient world. He's known across the globe for this wisdom. You can kind of think of him as the type of guy that could slice through knots in problems for people. And what we're about to read is his very first court case as the king. Two women are going to bring before King Solomon this case, and we're reading about it in 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 16. Here it is. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, Pardon me, my lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. She got up in the middle of the night and took my son from her side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put her, him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. And when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. The other woman said, no, the living one is my son. The dead one is yours. But the first woman insisted, no, the dead one is yours. The living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. I got to just ask you this morning, is this what you expected to hear from God's word? It's kind of a strange story, right? And in fact, you're probably asking this morning, I mean, what on earth, pastor? What is this story? Kind of a seedy story, right? Kind of a, kind of a, Kind of like a dirty story in the Bible. What does this have to do with the most beautiful verse of John 3.16? And I would tell you everything. In fact, the story is maybe easy enough to follow, but hard to kind of get at what's really going on. I mean, there's two women, you're told at the very onset of the story, their occupation, the oldest occupation, right? They're prostitutes. They're exchanging money for love, right? They're women of the night, and they both have babies. One of the babies dies when her mother suffocates her by lying on her, laying on her. And the claim is she takes the other woman's baby, replaces it with the dead baby. There's literally a kidnapping in the middle of the night. And they now stand before the king with this domestic dispute, right? Whose child is this? And all this week, I just thought about how odd this story is. I mean, think about it. I mean, Solomon, he's the wisest, the richest, the most powerful man. He's leading this kingdom of God, God's holy people, Israel. And this is the first case that he has to try. You know, like, I don't know, wouldn't Solomon have people like kind of below him that could deal with these lesser cases? And I mean, how do you even, how do you even rule in this scenario, right? I mean, who do you believe, right? I mean, they're both prostitutes. Um, there's no rules in the ancient world for how to deal with this sort of thing. In fact, it's even more complicated because, what, there's no, there's no husband in the picture. I was kind of thinking this week, it's, it's all the rage today to make everything about toxic masculinity, and that kind of gets blamed for so many things in our, our culture today. But, but we actually just trace the roots of kind of the biblical foundations of a family, and we see the problem. There's, 
There's no husband in the story to provide for either woman, to protect either woman. So both of these prostitutes are kind of left with this unsolvable knot, right? I mean, whose word do you take? It's one against the other. It's a Gordian knot. And so it escalates, kind of looks to me like most of the stuff you would see on daytime television, right? I mean, this is Dr. Phil sort of at its worst. They're arguing on this stage of the court system. And for me, as I read through the story, I just, I kept getting this pit in my stomach. Every time I read it, I just found myself just kind of deeper into sadness. It was kind of a down week, and it's kind of a down morning with the rain outside, right? And I mean, everything about this story is just so sad to me. If you ask my wife, I mean, anytime I hear like a headline or there's a movie about a, a child being harmed, I mean, in this story, a baby dies. And that sort of thing just eats me up. I, I can't tolerate it. I have to look away from it. I just, nothing about it. It just bothers me so much. And it should break our heart, right? I find that today we have so much violence and so much bloodshed that it often doesn't really take, it takes an awful lot to move the needle in our care and our concern. And the story of baby dies. And yet today we, we know that abortion kills some. 900,000 babies a year, uh, some 64 million since 1973, and I kind of brushed up on my statistics of abortion, and though it had been steadily declining for the last decade, it is now steadily on the increase again. It's just sad. And I mentioned toxic masculinity, but the story doesn't do much to uphold women either, right? I mean, the two women are prostitutes, and maybe that doesn't get a lot of headlines today, but we could modernize this story if it dealt with child trafficking or maybe another sexual sin, maybe the secret sin of pornography. And all of this would just be just this continuation of this slouching towards this darkness of humanity. It's a sad, sad story. I got thinking, I put my counselor hat on, and I just thought of the, the stress, right? I mean, the PTSD, I mean, one of these women, like, actually accidentally killed their child, woke up with a dead baby next to them, and then somehow thought it was right to place the dead baby and take the live baby, and now the other woman has to wake up next to a dead child. Can you imagine just the layers and layers of trauma and grief that both these women would experience? And not only that, I, I think of the child that lives. I mean, he's now has the story imprinted into his life, right? I mean, he, he's now being a pawn used in a court case. I'm even sad for Solomon, to be honest with you. I mean, here's this king, he's this young ruler, and, and this is what he's got to deal with. I mean, this is a defining moment in Solomon's life. In fact, three lives will forever be changed by the ruling, the decision here by Solomon. So let's see what Solomon does with this Gordian knot, picking back up in verse 24. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. I'll tell you, it was probably shocking to be in that courtroom that day. 
I mean, to hear the words from this young ruler, bring me a sword, cut him in two. So fascinating. I I read through many, many commentaries and, and tried to get a feel for what scholars thought on this particular story. And some were very mixed. Some kind of raised the question, would Solomon actually do this? I mean, it's a barbaric time. It's an ancient world. Or was this just the way in which he thought his wisdom needed to be played in this moment? You really don't know, but he uses this tactic, no matter what you think of it, and it, in a way, draws out the true mother. And it's all because of the love of the true mother that rings through in this story. And this child lives, and the legend of Solomon would grow from this point. But I want you to think about this story and start kind of wondering, like, why, why is this in our Bibles, right? I mean, what's the characters have to do with me? In fact, some of you, you might be thinking, well, Pastor, you seem to be on, on kind of a sword kick. Because if, I, if you were here a few weeks ago, I told another story that was very violent and barbaric as well. It was about another sword-wielding man. It was about Ehud, the left-handed warrior. Remember that guy? He strapped a dagger to his thigh, and at just the right time, like, He's so smooth, he grabs the dagger and he buries it into the evil king's belly, right? I mean, it's, it's gruesome. And now we've got Solomon, he's just about dismembered a child had it not been stopped. I mean, what is this saying? Is this saying something about violence? And, and I would say that's far from the point of this story. In fact, I think in the story, we need to kind of try to figure out who we are in the story. What's the characters of the story saying to us, but more importantly, about us? So there's not very many characters. There's the king, and I'll be your pastor to tell you this morning that in this story, you're not the king. There's only one king, and this is a prototype, a typology of the true king of Jesus. So you're not the king, I'm not the king. And I'll also tell you in this story that you're, you're not the baby. The baby is just, in both babies' cases, they're passive characters in the story. So if the story is not about the king or the baby, then it must, in the message, have something to do with these two women. And I want you to think about these two women for a moment. I mean, one was very willing to use dishonesty and deception to get what she wanted, which wasn't hers. And the other woman, far from perfect, was willing to give up her child, knowing that it was the only way to save him. But before you go too far far with that thinking, I have to remind you that they're both still prostitutes. They're both still full of sin. And this is the part of the message, I'll just warn you up front, you might not like this comparison I'm about to make. Because it would be very easy for me as a pastor to get up here and tell you how great you are. Because in a way I'd sort of be patting myself on the back and how great I am. And so a pastor could get up this morning and could say words like, you know, you're like a loving child before your heavenly father. And that would be true. There's nothing untrue about that statement. But I also got to be the person that tells you this morning that it's equally true to say to you this morning that you're no different than two prostitutes standing before a righteous judge. Had a little sidebar conversation with my 16-year-old son after the first service, and he goes, I think you just called the whole church a bunch of prostitutes. And I said, well, I'm in good company because the Apostle Paul said that he was the chief of all sinners. And so it's equally true to say, yes, you are a loved child of God, and you're no different than someone with sin. Because the Bible says when God looks at sin, 
all sin is the same. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no scale on which your sin is balanced. In fact, some of you this morning might be thinking, no, 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 pastor, you don't get it. I'm, I'm working on me. I'm trying to do all the right things. I'm a good person. And if you were to say, well, it's your goodness that matters, then I would have to remind you of Isaiah 64, verse 6, which says your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And here's the hope. Here's the beauty of John 3.16. It's the reminder that you truly are more sinful than you dared to believe, while at the same time you are more loved than you could hardly imagine. You are a child, and at the same time you are a sinner. And I think that's what's so interesting about these two verses. When we look at them together, we really see the best of what God offers. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And we have at the same time the worst of human capacity. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. I think when this verse kind of hit me this week, I kept coming back to this word gave. How God in this story exhibits something that I don't think we think about enough, which is his goodness in the ways in which he gave. God gave his one and only son. Let me try to illustrate this um, in kind of a parenting role for a moment. Think about this if you're a parent. I guess if you're a grandparent, it works too. But if you're a parent here this morning, and I don't know, we had some coffee over in the square, and I just were to casually ask you, you know, I just asked you as a parent, do you love your kid or your kids if you've got several? And I know 99.9% of you, there's always the 0.1, but 99.9% .9 of you would say, oh, pastor, I love my kid. And in fact, I would take a bullet for him. If that was my child in the story, I would want my life taken, not theirs. And I'd be like, okay, well and good. <laughs> but what if I just changed that question just a little bit? Not, do you love your kid? But what if I asked you this? Would you give your kid anything? Oh, I think the percentage would drop from 99%. Some of you would quickly pick up on the fact, wait a minute, Pastor. Are you asking me if I would give my kid anything? Like, I'm not going to give them a Ferrari before they turn 16. I'm not going to give them unlimited sugar just before bedtime. I'm not going to give them a curfew with no end. You would say to me, Pastor, I love my kids, but my giving has limits. And that's true about you and I, but that's not true about God. See, we see in this story this reflection of the goodness of God, that, that God is the ultimate giver. God is unmatched in his ability to give. He is the greatest of all time at giving, and he provides the example for us to follow. In fact, really fascinating, a bit of work was done uh, by an author named Adam Grant, wrote a great book I highly recommend called Give and Take. And in the book, Adam Grant kind of found that people fall into three categories. You're either a giver, you're a taker, or you're a matcher. It turns out that people who are givers are more respected and have more friends than takers. Kind of goes without saying. But the problem is most people aren't givers. They're matchers. You know what a matcher is, right? Matcher is someone who keeps score. This for that. They've got kind of this ongoing tally with every single person. And they want to keep the books equal between one another. I'll do this for you if you'll do that for me. Now, the message really here today isn't about you or about me, but I'll tell you that matchers are the least satisfied in everything they do, and they're also uh, the least likely to kind of be productive and successful in life. 
I'll let you kind of on your own determine if you're a giver or a taker or a matcher, but I want you to think about this attribute, this giving nature of God. I mean, just ask you this morning, aren't you so glad that God is a giver? I mean, it'd be a pretty scary world if God were a taker, wouldn't it be? And then if God were a matcher, how would you ever match up with God? I mean, what books do you want to bring to reconcile with a holy God? I mean, whatever metric you think you match up to God on, I mean, what would that be? I mean, if God were to say, well, you know, have you prayed about it? Have you prayed enough about it, right? I mean, what if, what if God were to kind of make the score you're giving? Have you given enough? You know, what if God were to make it your church attendance? You know, what, whatever it is, you would never match up to a holy God. This gives us a whole new insight into the goodness of God. And I don't know about you, but I just, I feel like I need the reminders of God's giving nature, his goodness and his giving. And uh, I don't see it nearly as much as I should. I, I tend to be the type of person that sort of gets caught up in a lot of details and, and I'll kind of miss the forest through the trees. And so I need this reminder on who God is. Uh, maybe I'll say it this way. I, I just, I had one of those weeks. I don't know if you've ever had, had like a bad day. I had like one bad day and then it kind of turned into another bad day. And then before I know it was Friday, it was like all of them were bad days. And, uh, you know, my issues, your issues, we've all dealing with stuff. And I just was kind of thinking about this and thinking about it. And my wife tells me I spend way too much time in my head. So I decided to what I do what I like to do, which is kind of go for a run, sort of get physical, and maybe that will work it out. It oftentimes sort of does. And I was running, as I normally do, and the run didn't even feel good. Like, normally I kind of get that endorphin high that kicks in after a few miles, and it was no kicking in. I just kind of, it was a lousy run, and I, I felt worse as I was doing it. And I was thinking about this message, and all of a sudden, I looked up, and I saw this deer. I've probably run this trail maybe, I don't know, maybe a hundred times a year I run this direction. And anytime I've seen a deer, it's always like off in the distance, and they just kind of bounce off into the cornfield next to me. Not this deer. It was a strange run. This deer stopped and just looked at me, and it kept chewing, and then it <laughs> crossed over the trail. It gave me more than enough time to take out my phone and get this selfie. I could literally see its mouth chewing, and and literally, I, I kind of got bored of staring at this deer. It was like minutes are passing by, and I kind of realized, you know, one of us has got to move. And so I started running up the trail, like I'm going to go around him. And this deer, I've never seen this before, started running next to me on the White Pine Trail. It was far faster than I was, and it kind of said, see ya, and then headed off into the, into the field there. But I got to tell you, I got back from that run, and I felt so different. And it was really because I started thinking about, man, if God cares for all of his creation, and he's got this deer out in the field, and this deer doesn't have a care in the world. Why should I? Why can't I just give that over to this giving God that would love to untie the problems and the knots in my life? I want to leave you with one last thought, because I said at the beginning of this message, we all have problems, but we all have at least one problem. And the greatest gift of God is to the solution of the greatest problem, and that problem is sin. Sin, whether you have big sin in your life, or little sin, it's all seen the same by God. It's a Gordian knot, and the more you try, the more tangled it becomes. And there's no solution in and of yourself. It's two prostitutes standing before a righteous judge. And the only way sin, their sin, and your sin, and my sin, is untangled is through the perfect sword of Jesus, who cuts through all of our issues, all of our errors, all of our faults, and gives us grace. For God so loved the world 
that he gave. I want you this morning just to think about the giving nature of, your, of God and what God has given and blessed you in your life and just give you an opportunity to think about and reflect on that. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and to lead us. And if you would simply just bow your head and pray with me, please. God, we come before you now and we've heard this amazing story of your grace and your sword that at times it pokes and it prods into the depths of our hearts where sin resides and you call us into the light. And so God, I just pray here with this church body, with people who are eager to follow after you, to turn from ways of sin and error and wrong and to receive the goodness and the grace that you provide. I pray that in these moments, God, you would meet in the depths of every human heart and you would do what only you could do to call us into the light, into the love of your Savior. God, I pray that you would even now as we're just reflecting on your nature that you would remind us of the ways in which you blessed and given to us far beyond what we could ever hope or imagine. I pray that hope would fuel us to serve and to extend your love and your reach into every corner of the world. God, we love you and we praise you. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide.